morning's text uh, continues our stories from the gospel according to Luke, and if you've been around in the last three weeks, you figured out that we're going to be preaching from these stories all through the summer, even into the fall. As you look at these stories back to back to back, you notice that there's a trend. For instance, in the last three weeks, we've noticed that the radical love and grace of God has continued to expand itself out to larger and larger uh, units of folk who would be considered ordinarily outcasts uh, and dispossessed. The healing of the a centurion's slave, a centurion, not a Hebrew, a Roman legion officer. Uh, the raising of the woman's son from death, the woman who would be left completely dispossessed from uh, any kind of financial security with the loss of her son. Uh, and this morning's passage, which comes to us again from the chapter of 7 in the Gospel of Luke, verses 31 through chapter 8, 3. As I read this, try to get a sense of the, the passion and the radicalness of it as it is being told into a community that really isn't much different than the Taliban community today. May God open up to us an understanding of his word. One of the religious people asked Jesus to eat with him and he went into the person's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster joy, jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were truly a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom the, the greater debt has canceled. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then Jesus said to her, again, your sins are forgiven. By those, but, excuse me, but those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so it's Father's Day, and I want to talk to you about something, a subject, an experience that serves as one of the most powerful experiences in our lives, yet also one that we are always trying to avoid. It caused Jimmy Swagger to get on his knees in front of a television audience and pray about it. It's what Elizabeth Edwards wrote about the late and ex-wife of John Edwards. It caused Newt Gingrich to beg for forgiveness. Tiger Woods lied because of it, as did Bill Clinton more than once, causing him even to address the nation three times. Ruth Madoff lives in hiding because of it, being married to her husband, Bernie, and Oprah did 17 different shows on it. In truth, we spend much of, much of our lives trying to avoid it because it is one of the most vain, uh, deeply painful experiences human beings can have. And it is said with some jest that every Chicago Cubs fan faces it at the end of every baseball season. You figured out by now I'm talking about shame, maybe. Maybe you haven't. Shame, just saying the word, causes our shoulders to droop, our heads to drop, our eyes to close. We just want to cover our faces and we blush. It's the natural bodily response to being shamed. Or, with some who know how to deal with it in violence, to raise your arm and, stra and uh, straighten your back and lash out with narrowed arms and clenched teeth. Apparently the experience of shame is a universal experience. Some say even babies are born with the capacity for shame. Animals even apparently share it with humans. And in the first story of creation in the Garden of Eden, it's all about that. Adam and Eve are told they can eat of anything in the garden except for one prohibited tree, yet they eat of it, and their first response, their first awareness after eating of it is what? They are ashamed. They feel exposed. They feel naked. They feel completely uncovered. And because of that, they then go into hiding, which is the natural response to shame. They hide behind a tree. As God walks in the garden and calls their name, God discovers them in hiding and calls them forward. Out of their shame, God addresses them. There are consequences, of course, but ultimately it is an act of incredible grace, for God gives them, in the end, clothes to cover their shame with, symbolically protecting them from that shame for the end of their day. Now, some may say that shame and guilt are brothers, but I think they're more like distant cousins, certainly Guilt has something to do with the experience of shame, but I don't think 
really guilt goes deep enough. Besides, not everyone who is guilty feels shame, and not all who feel shame are particularly guilty. Guilt is the awareness that we have done something wrong or that we have done something bad. The old prayer for confession goes, God, forgive us for that which we have done and that which we have not done, for sins committed overtly or covertly. Guilt is about a specialized or particular act or neglect of duty. It's about something that comes in a particular time. Basically, it's about what we do. Shame, on the other hand, is about who we are. It can paralyze us with fear and self-loathing. It can make us feel disgraced, mortified, completely exposed, and ultimately vulnerable. There is no emotion that feels more deeply disturbing because in the moment of shame, it feels like a self-wounding from within. A feeling washes over us and we are consumed with thoughts that not only have we done something wrong, but that our whole being is wrong, defective, inadequate, not good enough, not strong enough, that we are less than and that ultimately we do not measure up. Now we've all had social gaffes, in fact, I had one this morning standing out in the chancel, or excuse me, the narthex, I read the call to worship. Unfortunately, it was last week's. I caught myself, reached over, grabbed the weekly bulletin that was current, and hopefully segued into something that made sense. But I gotta tell you, I was flushed. These moments when the warm glow of disgrace washes over us, we just want for a hole to open up and suck us in. My mother used to call it mortified. I was just mortified. And usually it has something to do with what one of her children had done at some particular place. And what that means is she'd just as soon be dead for then she'd be invisible. In fact, these moments of shame... Really, their embarrassment serve a purpose. It's what it means to be human. It reminds us we are finite and not perfect, and that on some level we do need to follow the rules of society, and when we don't, we should experience some sense of, well, depending on how bad, some sense of shame. If we don't experience shame at all, we must simply be sociopathic. The, uh, the people in power these days, no matter what party you pick, seem to have no sense of shame, I might say. And that adds true for people in religious power as well as political. There was a recent interview uh, with Donald Rumsfeld on the radio I was listening to, and... He was being interviewed about his new book, just come out, sort of his memoir, Looking Back. And the interviewer asked him if he had any regrets, any decisions, mistakes that he'd made looking back on his past that he'd like to own up to. And Rumsfeld said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, when 
when Robert McNamara wrote his memoirs looking back on the Vietnam War, he said in that that he thought he had made some very bad and tragic mistakes for which he felt regret and remorse. And I was just wondering if you might feel that way concerning Iraq. And Secretary Rumsfeld said, ironically, he said, you know, like Napoleon said, I've made so many mistakes, mistakes I no longer blush. Well, the irony is that he would choose Napoleon to quote in that circumstance. And the second irony is he's saying that he no longer feels a blush. And when you no longer feel a blush, you are no longer able to connect to that thing that makes us most truly human. I'm not talking about blushing with embarrassment. We've all had embarrassments. I'm sure I've probably told you about my ninth grade rite of passage embarrassment when I was invited to the Sadie Hawkins dance, the one dance of the year where the girls invite the boys. And I was mostly scared uh, and possibly uh, dealing with shame issues if I didn't get an invitation. So I left word out about this cute little eighth grader that it sure would be nice if she invited me. And her friends went back to her and told her, and she did invite me. She was as nervous as I was. So I talked my older brother into giving me some tips about how to dance. I mowed the yards of our neighbors and wanted to get some money to take her out to dinner at Pizza Inn, which was the Pizza Hut in Charlotte at the time. And, and I talked my brother, and it wasn't really talking. He bribed me. I had to pay him a ton of money to drive us. And so we get to the Pizza Inn, and I'm sort of trying to figure out what to do, and we ordered the pizza, and it comes, and, and I was told it was hot, but I reach out and grab a piece and blow on it a couple of times, and I take a bite, and immediately it scalds the roof of my mouth. So I try to pull it out uh, without looking like a complete idiot, and the cheese slides off the piece of pizza and pops down on top of my lower lip and chin. I was now suffering from third-degree burns in front of this sweet little eighth grader while I'm trying to maintain my composure and not look like the jerk I was. Things got only worse. As part of this eighth grade, ninth grade dance, I caught my mother into buying me some new clothes. She took me to Rose's, which was a store outside of Cotswold Mall, and kind of a department store. I found a great pair of pants, not really khakis, a little darker brown than that with some gold thread woven through it. It wasn't quite as flashy as something Elvis would wear, but I thought it was flashy enough, uh, these, these pants. And so besides that, they were no iron, permanent press. How cool is that? So I put on my new pants and pick this little girl up and we go off to eat pizza and then we get to the dance and after about the second dance I start smelling something that smells like the three-day-old shrimp sitting in our garbage can right now waiting for the pickup tomorrow. And it occurred to me that, you know what, we had not washed my pants before I wore them and that new permanent press fabric was smelling to high heaven. And so I excused myself with my sweet little eighth grade date and told her I had a stomach ache and ran into the locker room where I wetted some paper towels and began to wash my pants off, which only made it worse because then I had a dark spot in a place I didn't wish to have a dark spot. And so I began to cool myself off, hoping I could figure out a way 
what am I going to do? I sat there for an hour and a half. She sent somebody in looking for me. I sent word back out, I've got a stomach problem. After it was over, I found her wandering around. I'm sure, because of my sense of shame, she felt greater shame because I had stood her up. Now, we've all got a thousand of these stories, and, and I do too, like the one that, no, I don't think I'll tell you that one. <laughs> Multiply that experience times seven. No, seven times seven. And again, seven times more, and you will get some sense of the shame that the woman in this passage was feeling. She was born in shame in a patriarchal world because she was not born male. She was not going to be a wage earner or an economic profit. She was a woman, a baby maker. Immediately she is shamed by her gender. And the text says that she is a woman. She didn't even have a name in this story. And not only that, she's a sinner. A woman who is a sinner. And immediately we, of course, jump to oh, what else could she be doing? She lived in the city. She must have been a prostitute. Is that that's the only sins that women could commit in those days? The story doesn't say that. It just says she's a woman who was a sinner. This unnamed woman with an unnamed sin with the scarlet letter tattooed on her soul lived in complete shame from her community, ostracized and shunned. No one would come close to her because she might be contagious. She had learned to stay as invisible as possible, hiding herself like the elephant man behind whatever she could find. The less she was seen, the better. Which makes it so amazing that when she hears that Jesus has been invited to this religious person's house for dinner, she draws herself up out of her hiding, walking in plain view in front of all the crowd that had gathered around the house, back straight, head up, jaw out. They murmured and cajoled her as she walked the walk of shame, and they could pull back away from her. She didn't hesitate. She walked into the room where they were dining in this house. And in those days, men were dining, women were waiting. The men would dine at a table six or eight inches high, reclining on pillows, feet behind them. She walks up to Jesus, and she begins in utter gratitude to weep upon his feet. To wash them with her tears, she takes the comb out of her hair, it falls, she then leans over and dries her feet with her hair. If Hollywood were playing it out, you can just imagine it. Slack-jawed, everybody stopped cold at that moment. They looked at her, then they looked at Jesus, then they looked at each other. Then a thin smile came on their lips as they knew they had him. As Simon said, if he was truly a prophet, he would have known that this woman was a sinner and he would not have let this happen. 
this intimate, almost erotic response of this woman was a complete disgrace to the religious authorities and the moral host gathered there. She was breaking every social and cultural taboo in sight, yet she showed no shame at all. Wide open, completely revealed and vulnerable for the world to see as she gave herself in ultimate gratitude and love to Jesus for what he had done for her. You see, Jesus is calling into question all of the religious institutional stuff that says to the people, you know what? You've got to measure up to get close to God. You've got to live right to get blessed by God. You've got to come to the priest to get absolution before you can know you are forgiven. You've got to do something step by step by step to get this forgiveness and as the religious institution, we're the ones who will tell you what it is you have to do. And he turns the whole thing upside down. The early church interpreted this text as saying, because she had given much, she was forgiven. But in fact, the real text says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven already. Hence, she has shown great love. Not she has shown great love, therefore her sins are forgiven. Her sins are forgiven now. She shows great love. And then he says to her, in case she didn't get it, one more time. Your sins are forgiven. Go therefore in peace. The church in terms of being the body of Christ, must always hold this truth out. We don't have to do anything to get God's favor. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do. It's done. There is nothing that we are or are not not our race, our gender, our sexuality, our past life that can separate us from that love and forgiveness. The church as the body of Christ must proclaim this above all things. For this, you see, is the only thing that will set us free. Her act of shameless love came as a response as is our act of whatever it is we do. Whatever it is we do. And what do we do with it? This shame we carry around like monkeys on our backs. We get tattooed, no shame on our back as if that does it. We reveal everything about ourselves on Facebook in a sort of shameless way as if that does it. You see, shame is an existential condition. It is something within us that calls into question our beingness, our conditionness. It calls us into believing that we are unacceptable inside of ourselves and 
And if that's the case, then ourselves are in, unable to be able to resolve that issue. Therefore, any remedy for shame has to come from outside of ourselves. From one who knows us better even than we know ourselves and still loves us. And this is apparently what Jesus had brought already to this unnamed woman who was known only as a sinner. My friends, this is the power of God that comes to us through the life and death of Jesus Christ. He has already come and spoken these words. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. This is the power of God who's, for women whose shame drives them to stay thin or modest. To use all available resources for their appearances. Not only how they look, but how their children look and how their houses look and how their husbands look and how their whole persona, persona looks and what drives them to do it perfectly and never let anybody see you sweat. And this is what drives men to always appear composed, in charge, avoid being thought of as weak or unmanly, never appear vulnerable or, for God's sake, unsuccessful, and whose default response is lock and load. It's shame. All of us, on some level. When you start to see it for what it is, it's seen as epidemic in our culture and in some cultures even more. I've got this sense, theory really, and I think it can be substantiated, that the deeper and greater the culture is that is shame-based, the deeper shame-based a culture, the more violent it becomes. I mean, when you're trying to save face, the only way to do so is to reach out and whack somebody else's face in the process. As adults, the residue of our shame becomes more and more complex and inflated. It leads to adultery, lying, extortion, pretense, bravado, pride, and self-righteousness. Oh, the road to self-righteousness that covers our true sense of ourselves with this aroma of looking like we are good and godly all driven by the same thing of feeling we do not measure up. Shame. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel if you believe anything, that the word of God became like us so that we would finally come to understand that we have been set free from this and that we no longer need to stay in hiding. Through the grace of God, there is no longer any disgrace about us. This is why grace is so powerful. It clothes us where we are most exposed and covers us in the arms of God's everlasting love. And not only that, it gives us the freedom and the courage to be gracious and forgiving and loving in return. And there's no shame in that. Let us unabashedly bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.